0: And I want to start by asking the question, what is the life of faith? Faith is pretty important uh, to Christians. We are saved by faith. We live by faith. We walk in faith. But what does it really look like practically in our lives every day? I want you to think about that. Hold, Hold that thought in your head because I think this text will help us a bit and we'll kind of wrap back to that as we go now as our text opens this morning joseph has just saved his family Uh, if you were here with us last week you know that he brought them down to egypt all the house of jacob 70 or so right of his brothers and their Wives and their kids, the whole families, and he, he masterly, masterfully orchestrated for them to have the land of Goshen in Egypt. It's a beautiful pasture land, the perfect place for them to practice uh, their shepherding and grow their herds. And we noted that it was all, it's also a bit removed from the Egyptian so- society to give them a buffer as foreigners in the land... They they were told, we were told, they would be an abomination to the Egyptians. The Hebrews, especially shepherds, they did not like them. They were disgusted by them. So they would have some space. So Joseph has not only saved and and provided for his family, he set them in a safe place. But as soon as we read the first verse of our text, we realize there's a bigger provision that's needed beyond his Family, look at verse 13 as our text starts. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. That the famine is peaking, it's, it's not even close to over. It's going to go on for many years, and, and it's kind of come to a head. There's no food anywhere. You know, it's not that there's a run on the staples at the, at the market and, you know, the price of eggs is really high. No, no, there is no food in the land. And it isn't just Egypt, right? It says the land of Egypt and Canaan. All the surrounding areas and people groups and nations, they are languishing, it says. It's not a good word. It means that they're growing weak and, and frail for lack of sustenance. It's the kind of situation where children go malnourished and and suffer. Now the good news is, God's wise ruler, Joseph, already has a plan. Through divine insight, i.e. the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream that God gave him, he saw this coming. He predicted the seven-year famine and he, and he had them save up massive stores of grain just for this time. And now he begins to dole it out. But interestingly, we see in this text that it's not just kind of freely and randomly, kind of first come, first serve. He actually has this very specific plan to not only provide for Egypt in this, but to actually build Pharaoh's wealth, to bring blessing on Pharaoh and his house. I, I, I think this is uh, specifically an answer to Jacob blessing Pharaoh last week. If you remember, he meets Pharaoh, this old leathery Jacob who has to be stood up. He's so old and dying, and he's this nobody shepherd standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. He promises blessing upon him. And you kind of wonder when you read it, how's he going to do that? How's that going to happen? Well, Joseph delivers, doesn't he? And boy, does he. First, he starts with the money of the land. Look at verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So the people of the nations come to buy grain, and Joseph charges them for it. Not exorbitant rates or anything like that. It seems to be equitable and fair, so everybody has access. But he charges them for the grain. And all the money of the land is soon spent. All of it. All the money... Is in Pharaoh's coffers. Think about that for a minute. That's unparalleled wealth, maybe in all of history. All the money in the land. Imagine if all the money in America was in one man's bank account. Now, you know that makes Mark Cuban or Elon Musk or all those super wealthy guys—they got nothing compared to that. Then Joseph gathers all the land. Look at verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and flocks and herds and donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. The the people are so desperate that they give over their land and their livestock. The very tools to provide for themselves in the the future, they give it over lest they die. So they hand it all over and they live another year. So now Pharaoh and and Joseph, kind of as his right-hand man, have all the money and all the real estate, probably, you know, mortgages. But, of course, another year passes, and the people run out of food again. So what do they do now? Now that they have nothing. Verse 19. I'll actually start a little before that, in 18. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? By us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants of Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. So in the end, Joseph, uh, well, Pharaoh, and and Joseph is his right-hand man in charge of his house, control everything, all the wealth of the nation of Egypt, all the real estate, They hold the deeds. All the people, they work for them, like serfs. Now, as a modern reader, especially a Westerner, you can't help but squint at this a little bit. It it, it seems so wrong. And I think uh, we are tempted to commit presentism. We kind of read back our present governmental values and norms into this ancient Near East context and make judgments. This is exploitation, or at least right for it. This is slavery. You can't buy people. This is bad. But two things to remember. First of all, such a form of government was very common in that day, where, where a king kind of owns everything. In fact, it was the norm. So Joseph was only acting within the system and structures he knows, and he's actually doing it very shrewdly and prudently. In fact, when the dust settles, things seem to be very good. All the people are employed, working the lands as royal servants. Joseph has instituted a 20 Percent uh, grain tax so the people are able to keep four-fifths and one-fifth goes into Pharaoh's coffers so there's surplus for the future. It's not that bad. You think 20% tax and everything is working great. Yes, please. Note the response. This is important. This is the second thing to note. Note the response of the people in verse 25. Look at it with me. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. We'll be servants for life, Joseph. You you have saved our lives. We would have surely died. See, the truth is, normally, such a system... Of governing it is clearly a bad idea. Probably going to go wrong because humans are sinners and and, and power is corrupting. And thus, people must protect themselves from exploitation. That that would happen inevitably. But this time it is good. Why? Because Joseph is. Because Joseph is God's ordained ruler, savior. We've seen this all the way through. Who else is going to be more just and equitable? Who else should have control of all the wealth? Who else will act with wisdom and compassion and justice? And the people know it, and they experience it, and they love him, and they want to serve. They come and give their lives. It's an incredible moment. Not only has Joseph saved his family from this famine. But all of Egypt is bowing their lives to him as their savior. You saved our lives. And I think there's a couple faith lessons for us here. When I said, what does this have to do with faith? I think there's a couple, three kind of lessons of faith or reminders here for us. And the first one is simply this, to keep Perspective, kind of God's perspective, when things are bad. Faith keeps that perspective when things are bad. Because this story reminds us of God's surprising sovereignty. It shows us again how when life is hard and we can't see what God is doing in it, he is still sovereignly working out his salvation plan in ways we would never expect and yes this has been a repeated theme in joseph's life how god is working through all the ups and downs and dysfunction of his people to bring to completion his promises his salvation work for his people we have seen this a couple of times in this series and we see it again and we'll see it again a little later But we have to note it again right now because it's so incredible. Think about what God had promised Joseph. Uh, Excuse me. Think about it. God had promised Joseph that he would come to rule. That was that dream he had when he was 17. But what has been the path to this? Well, it's It's been him being mocked and hated by his own family, sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown into prison for years. But God used it all to bring him to this incredible ascendancy where all the people of the land come to bow to him as servants. Just as he promised, he is ruler and savior of his people in a way he never dreamed Nobody ever dreamed. And in the even bigger picture, his family, through all this, is being shaped into God's people, just as God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12. And the nations are being blessed, literally saved from death, just as God promised back in Genesis 12. It's amazing. And you know why I think... This reality, this truth is emphasized repeatedly in these narratives until it climaxes in in chapter 50, as we'll see. God's surprising sovereignty through all of it. You know why I think this is emphasized? Because we're dumb. We are dumb forgetters of this truth. As sinners, we are spiritually slow and dull to this reality. It reminds me of the, the disciples in, uh, in Mark. You remember when we went through Mark and the disciples uh, struggled to understand? Remember when they got in the boat and they didn't have bread and they're freaking out about the fact that they're going to cross the lake and they don't have enough bread? And what does Jesus say to them? He looks at them and he says, Uh... When I broke the five loaves, or the loaves of, for the 5,000, the five loaves for 5,000, how much was left? And they go, uh, 12 loaves. He says, then when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many loaves were left? Uh, seven loaves. And you know what he says next to them, literally in the Greek? Are you so dull? Really, guys, are you that dumb? Do you not see it? You're worried about bread. This truth, God's sovereignty, his control in the midst of things we don't understand is just illustrated and repeated throughout the scriptures. We're so prone to doubt and start wandering the minute things go wrong and get hard. We say, why God, how could this be? Where are you? No, faith keeps this perspective of God's sovereignty. He does his work through the worst stuff, like saving us through the cross. It's what he does. It's how he works. And by the way, this is why we need to keep ourselves in God's word daily, (laughs) And sitting together under it and interacting in small groups around it. It gives us perspective. It reminds us, both propositionally and and teased out in people's lives like the life of Joseph, so we remember. Now, there's a second way this passage bolsters our faith, a second faith lesson. And that is, it reminds us, this text, to keep focused when things are good it gives us perspective on why things are bad to trust God's sovereignty and it keeps us focused when things are good now you may be looking at text thinking where where are you getting that where'd that come from well it comes from the part of the text that we haven't looked at yet so look at verse uh, 47 with me actually it should be 27 look at verse 27 with me This is the conclusion after we find out that Joseph has become a national hero, having saved all of Egypt from starvation and instituted a taxation system for all to be cared for equitably. This is the conclusion, verse 27. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147. Israel, God's people, in the midst of this whole famine situation, are flourishing. Now, I know we said last week that they would be an abomination in the land, because the text tells us that. And that is true, and that's coming shortly for them. But initially, there is this kind of honeymoon period, this bubble, when things are really good for them. Perhaps it's because the Egyptian people are so distracted by just trying to survive. Perhaps Joseph's popularity has given them, you know, favor in this time. They're kind of trending as a people. Perhaps it's, the geographic remoteness of the area of Goshen, providing kind of a buffer from the main populace. Or it's a combination of all of them, most likely. But whatever the case, they are thriving as a people in the midst of this famine. They're not just barely making it, languishing, you know, with a high infant mortality rate. No, they are prospering, growing greatly, it says. And we aren't supposed to miss it. Note that the author has bookended this whole section about the famine in Egypt with descriptions of Israel's prosperity. So, if you look all the way back in, in verse eleven and twelve, just before our text, it says, "Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession of the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his fathers and his brothers and all his father's household with food." According to the number of their dependents, and then it gives the whole description of the famine, and then we're back to 27. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession that were fruitful and multiplied greatly. He doesn't want us to miss it. Even doddering old Jacob on the edge of death when they entered makes it 17 more years to the ripe age of 147. And he is where this text gets interesting because look at what Jacob says in these last verses, his last words kind of thing. Verse 29, and when the time drew near that Israel, that's Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Why does he say this? Why does he insist that he be buried in Egypt? Or that he not be buried in Egypt? Why does he make Joseph promise to bury him in the land of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac? He, he makes him promise with the Abrahamic hand under the thigh promise. That goes back to when Abraham made Eliezer promise Eliezer promised not to take a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. And then on top of that, he makes him swear an oath. He doesn't just make him promise that. Then he makes him swear an oath, thus putting him under God's judgment if he reneges. Why so serious? What's Jacob afraid of? Well, I think... It's fear of what Israel always tends to do when things are good and comfortable. They lose focus. They forget who they are and what they're about. They forget the picture, bigger picture of what God is doing and how they're part of it. They lose track of his salvation promises and their purpose as his people. They aren't in the promised land. Things are good, but they are not in the promised land yet. They are on the way. The work is not done. You see, Abraham, in the midst of all this prosperity and flourishing, keeps his focus. He keeps his focus on the salvation work. And I think he's trying to make sure Joseph keeps his focus. In fact, he's making sure Joseph keeps it even after he's dead. Not him, not Joseph, but himself. There's such an important reminder here for us. You know, we may think that we are coming to the end of the American Christianized bubble where the church has just been kind of, you know, accepted by the culture and it's just been great. And now we're like saying that that's coming to an end and there's starting to be persecution and real suffering for Christians in America. But the truth is, it's still pretty good here. After all, we're here, aren't we? We aren't hiding. You didn't get up and think twice about who might see you driving off to church this morning, who might report on you. We worship freely. We listen to Christian radio anywhere. We send our kids to you know, Christian schools if we want and to Bible camps if we want. We are prospering and flourishing even in a downturned American economy. Life is good. And it's so easy to just settle in and get sidetracked with all the drama and busyness of the good life. You know, I got to get the kids early from school so we can get off to the ski mountain. But the detailer hasn't finished the car yet. My dog is still at the groomers. And my Hulu account is a mess. It's got to repackage the whole thing. March Madness is coming. And I'm pretty sure that my beard cream didn't come this month. So we just kind of assimilate and, and blend in and lay back into the giant American lazy boy recliner of life. We lose track of who we are and what we're doing as believers. The promises of God, the gospel mission. We have to remember life might be pretty good right now, but this is Egypt. We aren't home. We need to keep the focus. We need to remember the Great Commission. And the truth is, it's easy even as a church to lose missional focus. In all the comfort and ease. In fact, I think the American prosperity gospel has kind of encouraged it. Because it gives this sense that if God is is blessing us now, it means that somehow we've kind of arrived. We have our our best life now, and we just kind of sit back and enjoy it. No, we need to stay on task. We need to stay focused. We need to keep reminding each other, in all seriousness, like Jacob, of who we are as God's people. We need to look to the promised land, our heavenly calling. I need you to come up to me and say, Carrie... Place my hand under your thought. No, don't, don't do that part. But, but make me promise to stay at it, to keep the faith, to keep on about the gospel and hold on to it. You know, this is a big part of what this meeting and our small group meetings and our men's and women's Bible studies and our youth group meetings are about exhorting each other, reminding each other so we can stay gospel-focused, gospel partners, as Paul says in Philippians 4.27, striving side-by-side for the faith of the gospel. So don't miss church. (laughs) Get involved. The AGM tonight, the annual general meeting, you know what it really is about? It's a hand-under-the-thigh moment. That's what it is where we refocus, we re-promise, we remind each other. Now there's one more thing in this passage that functions to bolster and shape our faith. First, this passage helps us keep perspective when things are hard. That's what faith does. Second, it helps us focus when things are good. That's what faith does. And third, it shows us, it reminds us of the way of salvation. Or you might say the posture of salvation. Did you notice that? Who gets saved here? Who gets saved in this text? The Egyptians do. They proclaimed to Joseph, you saved our lives. And how does God's chosen ruler, Savior, save them? What happened? How did they get saved? Well, they come to him in humble desperation. They are dying, and they know it. They have no hope without him, and they know it. He's the only one who can provide them with sustenance for life. He literally has all the grain, and they acknowledge it. Don't let us die, they say. And did you notice how each time they get more and more desperate until they come to him with absolutely nothing and must acknowledge their complete bankruptcy? Before him. We have nothing, they say no lands, no money, no resources. All we can give is what? Our lives. All we can do is give our lives over to you. Buy us, they say. Purchase our lives. Redeem us. And make us your servants for life. And they throw themselves on his mercy. It's a vulnerable, scary moment of complete reliance and trust. That's all they got. But it's the best decision they ever made. Because he is God's good and faithful and compassionate ruler. So they are saved. Their lives are saved. And he provides for them from then on. You see, salvation hasn't changed God's ultimate ruler, Savior, has come in Christ Jesus, and he offers life, forgiveness, and life eternal to all, and he's the only one who can give it. Not only because he made it and owns it in him as life, but because he gave his life for us on the cross, conquering our sure death. He bought us. He purchased our lives with his but we must come, like the Egyptians, in total desperation, realizing we have nothing to give, knowing our souls are bankrupt. We must come in total reliance, in full trust, saying, take my life. I'll be your servant. And like the Egyptians, we'll be saved. As the scriptures say That's why I had the rich young ruler read because he couldn't do it, could he? He had that wealth and that stuff. He couldn't come in total desperation. He he thought he had something to hold on to. We must come fully given over in desperate dependence. This uh, This is the way of faith of the continuing life of faith. Faith comes to our Savior ruler in total trust and reliance and gives over our life. Faith keeps trusting Him completely when things get tough and we don't understand, trusting His sovereign plan. And faith keeps focus and trusts and serves Him on mission when things are good, not being distracted by the comforts of this world. That's what it is. That's how it's worked out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you don't just teach us in, in propositions in scripture, but you teach us in, in lives what it is to know you, to know your son, to be your saved people. Help us to truly live lives of faith as individuals and as a church. May we go from here trusting you for our salvation, for your plan in the midst of the good and the bad. Amen.